good, good afternoon, everybody. It's uh, Christian Thwaites, uh, October the 26th. Um, and thanks for joining us for our latest market um, webinar. I think I have to click everything here, make sure I'm okay. Hopefully these slides are showing up. Um, and we're at an interesting day again, because the S&P is, um, is pretty much at an all time high. It reached one at close last night and it's up another uh, 18 basis points today. So um, these are much easier to do when the markets are at a high, um, uh, but they're much harder to do if things are either low or an inflection point. Now, I don't think they're an inflection point. I think uh, you know, the market is, um, is up for good reasons, which I'll go into. Um, and I think uh, as the uh, subject um, uh, uh, title today shows, we're on a kind of solid recovery. There is some inflation around and we'll discuss that. And it's a continuation of the debate on temporary versus transitory. And uh, actually that's a bit of a binary outcome and it can be actually a little bit of both. Uh, but anyway, we'll cover that as well. Um, okay, let me uh, try and advance the slides here. So <laughs> you've probably seen the boats 87 boats or 77 outside the Los Angeles uh, Long Beach port. Now, normally this is not something which comes up in, uh, in everyday conversation. Uh, ports just function. They've always been there on the West Coast. The big ones are Seattle, one just down the road here uh, at Oakland. But the big monster is, uh, is the one down in Long Beach uh, and LA. So big that it has to be in two counties. And I don't know, I think about 40% of the inbound traffic from the across the Pacific is uh, is coming in uh, in into Los Angeles, um, and this is what a this is what a supply bottleneck looks like. If you kind of uh, screw your eyes closely, you can see that down there is a lot of containers stacked on top of one another, um, and there's only three ships being unloaded. Now, what are the other sixty-seven doing? That's a very good question, um, but the LA port is still not functioning. Um, at the level that it should be. And I can cover that in a minute. Uh, I think some of these issues are gonna go away. Um, for example, um, just, the, uh, just this weekend, um, there was a report that all of these containers, uh, some which are empty um, and some which uh, need to be put onto ships to go back empty, uh, can't be moved because they're uh, they don't have enough carriers. So the carrier would be the truck or something that would, you know, holds the containers. Um, so they stack them, you know, while they're waiting for them to be, uh, to be moved. Well, there's an ordinance in Los Angeles, Long Beach, which says that you can't stack containers more than too high. Um, so this guy went around and said, why don't you stack them six high and you'll free up a ton of space. And 24 hours later, the hell of the port said, that's a very good idea. Uh, and so, you know, if this photograph is being taken today, these uh, these these containers would be um, would be uh, would be six high, and that begins to free up the capacity, which means then the ships can come in, the cranes can start cranking. Um, in a normal port operating at full capacity, there should be a ship on every single one of these cranes, um, either un uh, uh, unloading in, in most cases. And the fact that it's so snarled up is because of so much of this. So much of these containers uh, have have built up. You know, we're not exporting as much to China as the, as we're importing from them. So the containers come in full, um, and they pretty much go back empty. I mean, the only thing we really send to China is liquid natural gas, natural gas, and and soybeans. I mean, there's some other stuff as well, airplane stuff. But I'm talking about stuff which goes in containers. Um, so uh, you know, some of these some of these issues 
about the, oh my God, the you know, hair on fire, the LA Los Angeles ports are completely snarled up and uh, they'll never be active again, will go away. Um, it's an issue about truck drivers. It's an issue about trains. I mean, there's a very simple solution on the trains, again, which hasn't happened. The trains come in, uh, whether it's Burlington Northern or any other big, uh, big four or five uh, um, uh, rail haulage uh, companies, and they come in and they, they go all the way to Dallas, let's say, 1,500 miles, um, and then they come back again. Well, there's some argument for putting um, a railhead about 100 miles from LA, which there are plenty of them to do, you know, with big marshalling yards there, and then get just get them out of the port and then get them picked up from a marshalling yard, which is not right in the middle of the port system. So, I mean, there are some very practical answers to, uh, to dislodging this, um, this supply bottleneck. I mean, Biden made a big point about having the ports run 24-7. That's fine. They, they are. Uh, could argue that they probably should have been, seeing as the ports which are shipping to them are running 24-7. But uh, again, that can, over time, be, be remedied. Um, but anyway, the supply bottleneck, I think, there's plenty of good examples, plenty of good, uh, um, em either it's empty shells or, or stuff stuck in ports or stuff stuck in ships. Uh, but my point is that this stuff goes away. This is this is supply shock. Um, I'm sorry. This is this is supply problem caused by a demand shock. And in an economy, it's much better to have a demand shock than a supply shock because eventually supply catches up. Okay. So where are we in uh, October 21? Well, um, we've had continued uh, improvement on the COVID-19 cases. Obviously, that's all in the headline. But remember, we came off two quarters of six, 7% growth, Q1, Q2, and the expectation was that Q3 would be pretty much the same. Well, it isn't, and it won't be when it's finally published at the end of this week. It'll be more like, you know, two to 3%. So, you know, no, make no mistake, the COVID uh, Delta second wave and the flare-ups in the Southern states, and you know the whole story, uh, was very real and very big. And it definitely uh, made people less confident to go out uh, and buy things. And it made a lot of service industries, you know, whether it's leisure and hospitality or airlines, all these, all these ones which could open up, you know, open up a lot less, uh, a lot uh, slower than they would otherwise have done. So, you know, the, uh, the, the top line growth has definitely been hit. Not going to go away. Um, you know, I, think, I think what's going to happen is we'll, we'll, see, uh, we'll see the recovery kind of prolonged for longer as opposed to kind of the, the V-shaped recovery, which we're expecting. Inflation, there is inflation in the system. Uh, as I said, you know, supply problems, they are real. Um, I mean, everywhere you look, whether it's uh, barges, truck, rail, ports, ships, containers, cranes, you know, all these things are big capital items. You can't just replace them quickly. And of course, some of this, some things like, you know, truck drivers is a very cyclical industry. A lot of people have been coming out of the, out of the, uh, truck driving industry it takes a while to get them back up to speed and back in again. That's probably the easiest one to do. It's a lot harder to do for a port worker or a rail, uh, a rail uh, driver or operator worker. So some of these things, you know, will be fixable. There are, as I said, mentioned uh, points uh, of, in, of of inflation, but not in real wages. Um, we have seen some wage increases at the lower end, and we'll discuss that in a little in a minute. But um, Really, for I, I always take basic premise that for inflation to accelerate to the kind of levels that we saw in the 70s, and that's really the only risk here, 
uh, you know, four, five, six percent inflation annual running for about a year to me doesn't constitute uh, you know, a broad, uh, uncontrollable price increase, just some price adjustments. Um, but for broad inflation, I think you have to have a lot of wage increases. You have to have kind of have this wage pull. Um, you know, there's cost push when your inputs go up and there's wage pull when there's just extra lot of demand. Um, you know, real wages are not really increasing. Normally, yeah, but uh, real wages are what, is what causes people to go out and spend more. And um, I don't think we, you know, we're seeing absolutely no sign of that. Uh, on any great level. The Fed uh, will probably announce their taper next week. You know, how do we know that? Because they said they would do it uh, last month. Um, and this means that they're essentially going to start on this first step of dialing down the quantitative easing uh, bond buying program. The rate increases will follow way after that. I mean, way after that, probably 11 to 12 months, depending on how quickly they announce the tapering. We think they'll announce it as a $15 billion decrease every month. So $15 billion decrease every month on 120 billion level puts you at next August if they start in November. And then they'll start to uh, think about the federal funds rate. Uh, employment was definitely weaker in September. We'd expected a little bit of jump back in September um, with the unemployment benefits finishing and so on and things opening up, but it has been slower. Uh, you know, why? Because I think, um, you know, not all the jobs uh, came back in the schools. Not all schools were open. Um, the leisure and hospitality industry didn't open up as quickly. So uh, part of this is kind of hope postponed. I mean, I hope not in the sense of it's, uh, you know, is it going to happen? Of course, of course it's going to happen. There's going to be a stronger employment in the next you know, couple of months. We'll see job growth. The question of whether it's between two and 500,000. I know that's a wide range, but the, that's what we're looking for. Uh, between now and the end of the year. Uh, the claims side is steadily improving. We've been commenting on that every week since last March, just because it's such a good indicator of uh, people um, being let go. Um, and they are definitely improved. And I think that economic activity, especially with consumers, should accelerate in Q4. The one thing which will keep them from spending to their utmost limit will be the supply problems. Let's remind ourselves on the COVID side, uh, look, here we are below the European Union. So there's the European Union in the, in the uh, uh, black line. And um, that's jumped up. There's a lot of countries in the European Union. So you, know, you can see Germany and France and Italy. Spain's not here. But you add all those together and they've kind of gone through a small resurgence, but nothing like the one that, uh, that hit uh, here over the summer. I mean, they had a, they had a delta and they managed to it was roughly a population uh, compatible with the US. Uh, they were able to stop that straight away. Um, ours obviously had this massive peak, um, uh, but it's now done quite sharply. You put that down to whatever you, you know, herd immunity, more vaccinations, more mask wearing, or what it is. But um, by some accounts, uh, the herd immunity might be getting very, very close. I believe it's around about 80%. And the combination of the people who've been vaccinated plus the people who've had it asymptomatic plus the people who've had it symptomatic, um, you know, is, it gets close to that number. Uh, so that's you know, definitely you know, moving in the right direction. And then uh, the states who uh, covered themselves in glory um, in, in August um, are all down at levels which were you know, are much more manageable. So, you know, Texas, which was 20,000 in September, 
um, is now down to you know, much, I mean, it's still quite high, but uh, it's down to about you know, 5,000. These, these are uh, seven day average uh, cases. So the story there, of course, is that this is moving in the right direction and gradually moving down. Uh, and short of another wave that you know needs a new Greek alphabet attached to it, I, you know, I think that a lot of this will now be uh, not a sudden end where everybody just goes up, where you can go back to February 2020, but it'll be this sort of slow, gradual, you know, cautious reopening with a lot of um, you know safety and uh, and mask wearing requirements and distancing and vaccination and all that good stuff. Um, so here's where the growth is uh, showing up. Um, so um, the Atlanta GDP now, guys, we, we had this, you know, this last year where we saw these huge decreases uh, and then they snapped back quite quite well in the middle of last year. And what we were expecting in 2021 was sort of like a, a 6 to 7% growth, which would have sort of got us back on track to where we were back here. Um, in order, And then it would kind of level off. Well, the first two quarters were great and then the the, um, the the latest gdp now forecast for the third quarter is 0.5 percent now i think they're slightly low but um but we'll see we'll get the first uh measure i think on thursday or friday uh, so look for that number if it's less than three percent that's sort of within tolerance levels if it's down at one and a half two percent i'd still say it's okay because they're they're making the gdp as this first estimate lacks a whole month's worth of trade uh, balance so um, and also some other primary inputs so it is a little rough and it and it will always get revised but anyway you can see the trends going down and I guess my point is here that you usually don't get inflation in an economy that's growing that slow we've got inflation flex points and and lots of incidences where we can point to higher inflation but you know, we're talking about broad systemic covers every part of the economy inflation if that's where you want to sort of measure it you know by the 70s or something like that and just to don't get that when when gdp is creeping along at uh, you know half a percent uh again a lot of talk about inflation now this is uh um the twitter founder jack dorsey and he put this completely idiotic uh, tweet out the other day hyperinflation is going to change everything it's happening uh, I mean, this is a really stupid tweet because um, not only for the fact that he's holding Bitcoin, which he hopes is a big inflation hit, but hyperinflation has maybe happened four times in the last hundred years. Uh, Hungary, Zimbabwe, uh, and of course the Weimar Republic. There's maybe a few others around. And that's when prices are doubling every few hours. I mean, hyperinflation is thousands of percent. And so it's a complete misnomer. It's like calling a light shower, a, you know, a category four hurricane. It's like, well, whoa, 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 you know, you're, you're using the terminology completely incorrectly. Now, so you'll see plenty of these things. And I'm afraid I'm just going to ask you to kind of, you know, turn the page and raise your eyebrows and say, this idiot doesn't know what he's talking about. Because, you know, hyperinflation is just something where is nearly in every case, it's a political decision. It's a decision by the politicians and the central bank to mint, print money at an incredible rate. I mean, literally in the Weimar Republic, people got paid three times a day. You know, they were to work three-hour shifts, get paid, go and pay some bills, do it again, do it again, because the, the, the inflation was so rampant and so and so fast. So these are extraordinary conditions 
which you know we're nowhere near to being close to. So I'm sorry to put this one up and hammer on it, but really uh, I think you've got to treat that kind of tweet with the uh, disrespect I think it deserves. And then you've got other people who are you know calling crypto and so on, you know, a hedge against inflation. Again, I think you have to look at what they're holding and what their motives are. Um, there's a lot of these um, a lot of these headlines. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about them. Um, you know, crypto is a different argument than against inflation, but um, you know, inflation, there's plenty of hedges against inflation, which have been proven to be hedges and, uh, you know, other than jumping into crypto. Um, now, so this freaks out the monetarists because those of you who were around in the early eighties, we were sort of looking at the money supply every five minutes and it was, you know, M1 and M2 and M3 and, and it was M0 for a while, and it was all about you know how much is the Fed, how much is the money supply base growing because that is just a precursor to inflation, and that's that's the old Milton Friedman definition where they said something like you know everywhere and anywhere, uh, inflation is a is a product of money growth or something like that. Anyway, it's kind of like a self-referencing um, definition, but there you go. But anyway, so what they're what they're saying is look, um, you know, the money base was growing at five six percent during which time the economy, certainly from 2001 on, sort of averaged about 2.5%. So now you've got this big explosion in monetary growth, it was up 23%, and even now it's up 13%, and this shows up in the Fed balance sheet. Um, but I mean, my kind of reaction to that is, so what? I mean, you know, the money itself does not create inflation. It has to be used and spent and directed towards something. The central bank might have $2 trillion worth of assets. We're not about to go out and you know, start buying cars and fridges and stuff. So, you know, it, it's yes, the money supply is there, but it doesn't mean it's always being used. It might be used for saving, in which case you're going to be staring at deflation. Um, or it might be being used for other purposes like quantitative easing, which is not necessarily going to lead to inflation. So anyway, this is, this is what the monetarist says. So anyone who's been to the University of Chicago, comes back with this stuff, but I think it's uh, it's sort of, you know way out of date in terms of uh, being a good inflation um, predictor. And let's kind of zoom out a bit. Um, yeah, the you know the headline CPI, which is what you're hearing about, is 5.3 percent, and you kind of got to go back to 2008 when there was an oil squeeze on, which when oil was over $100 a barrel, you know, to see that again, and then you know way back to to, to 1990 to see that again. The core one is, is strips out the uh, volatile energy and food components, and that's slightly better. Uh, it's slightly more accurate. Um, and that too is sort of, you know, add, add some of the highs. Um, so I'm not denying that inflation is there. It's just that, well, you know, if you were looking uh, long term at this, you might say, well, this was very odd. Uh, what the hell was going on there? But, but this looks like you know, it's all kind of, you know, traveling within the norm. Inflation spikes up sometimes in and around a recession, and then it kind of seems to moderate off again, it spikes up again, and it moderates off again. Um, and again, this, you know, th this recession is very different from all of these, because uh, these are nearly all caused by housing or credit problems. This was caused by people just, you know, stopping buying. Um, but the one to look at is, is the shelter one. And this should be, this black line, you know, as you can see, has been uh, you know, it's been about three percent. Uh, it dips down, way down post the GFC because people were getting rid of their houses and housing was cheaper. Uh, you know, if you're a mortgage buyer, rents were lower. Uh, but this is the shelter. The shelter one is very important because this is thirty-three percent of the CPI, and this is affected by mortgage rates, which um, which help it keep it down. 
and by rents, which keep it up, uh, just because rent increases have been, uh, you know, certainly in the pipeline, not very high, but um, uh, but they've certainly been been around, and also house prices, and they've definitely been very very strong over the last uh, twelve months. So this is the one to keep an eye on, um, because it really drives everything else. Um, so it's there, but you know, again, I kind of look back and go. Unless, unless this really, you know, you've got a really big jump in shelter, you're not going to get a, a prolonged break upwards in, in the CPI. So I'm kind of coming back to this core story of, yeah, it's there, it's higher than it was, but let's not paint this picture that we're in a permanently higher plateau. Um, I've used this before just because, you know, the obvious sectors that close, so anything people facing, the, the hotels, the airlines, the carnival ships, um, the, uh, you know, the, the restaurants, of course, you know, all, all those kind of service businesses were well, sure. Yeah, they were absolutely on their knees uh, back in uh, spring uh, and summer of last year. And so their year on year numbers are pretty impressive. Um, but let's just keep this again, somewhat in, in, uh, um, in perspective. I mean, the, the, the rental car market is, you, know, just, you can see back here this black line is sort of was flat for the longest time and sort of went up 20% in seven years and then nowhere for the next 12 years. And then now it, this is 90% above its start point. So, you know, 02. But you can see that, you know, it basically went up 90% from its low and then it's coming off very quickly because, um, you know, rent, rental car business isn't particularly complicated. If you've either, you've either got a fleet that you can rent out at prices people are afford, can afford or you can't. And the and the, the major rental car companies, Hertz especially, went, went sailing into bankruptcy and sold off its assets. So, you know, when the demand came back, they were busy in the used car market, which is, uh, you know, pretty much that, um, that well, that's down here, uh, this one here, which I'm pointing to, but it's, it flows right through to the, to the rental car market. So that capacity eventually will even out and come much, much, but much more back into line. And people have had horror stories about rental, renting cars in places like Hawaii. Uh, those things aren't, you know, going to last. Uh, you know, eventually you'll see, uh, you know, competitors coming on. It's not a business which which requires, uh, you know, it's, it's not particularly high tech. You need you just you need the fleets and logistics. And if if these prices stayed like that, they, they would just be competed away. I think. But uh, and the use these aren't terribly important. I mean, they they make they make great good headlines, but, um, you know, US airline airfares are mostly driven by business travel. Uh, they're a very small part of the CPI, I don't know, less than 1%. Actually, everything on here is less than 1%, unless the, uh, other than the used cars, and that's a big one, and it's 3.5%. And that one's going to continue to go uh, up. I mean, you can see that it's sort of increasing, had a bit of moderation, but I, I would see at least this staying at this level, um, perhaps creeping up again. Why? because the semiconductor shortage has really hit car production. Um, I mean, it's the inventory in most of the um, car dealers is about one-to-one. -one. They basically have one car for every one they sell. Uh, it's normally about two and a half to one. You know, they've got two and a half cars, or three cars for every, uh, or you know, five cars for every two they sell, whatever, however you want to think about it. But anyway, the inventory is incredibly low right now. So that's why you can't get deals. They're not going to give you anything um, you know, other than manufacturers retail price, but that eventually will work its way out. You know, eventually these semiconductors 
which are mostly, you know, the shortage means that it's going to the high value items and the car isn't particularly a high value item. I mean, it is, it's a high cost, but there isn't a lot of profit in it. You're going to make a lot more profitability if you stick a chip in an iPhone than you are in a car. So, um, so I think this um, used car component is going to drift up a little bit. It's really tied to the new car production numbers, which are you know, it's under, under some strain because of the conduct, semiconductor shortage. Uh, energy looked bad. I mean, last year is a very interesting energy story going on in Europe. And I mentioned that natural gas prices are very regional. In the US, we've got tons of it and it's quite easy to get around. Just stick a pipeline wherever the gas is in Western Pennsylvania or somewhere in the Permian Basin and, and you know, pipe it under pressure to where it needs to go. But uh, in Europe, it's much harder. Um, you know, a place like the UK has to ship it in um, mostly. And then and if you're sort of, uh, yeah, if, you, if you're sort of, you know, Western Europe, it's got to come a long way and sometimes it's got to come by ship. So, um, so the, these are the natural gas prices in Europe indexed and this is the natural gas prices in the US. You can see there's a huge difference. Uh, basically, the US is paying less than half the natural gas prices than, the, than, than Europe is. Now they have spiked up and they've come off a little bit, but they're high. And I think this is the, the energy component is, is much more of a problem in European inflation than it is in the US. Why? Because we've got lots of energy that we can bring on tap if we have to. But uh, anyway, so this is this, you know, a month ago, this was just, you know, reaching for the roof, but now it's, it's leveled off a little bit. So the trending down is, is, is definitely good. On the bond side, we started out the year, uh, if you can squint down here, at about 1% and rates drifted up to about 170, back down to 140, uh, and now they're up to about 160. I mean, you can see that by historical standards, this is still incredibly low um, and is probably likely to remain. I mean, it might drift up to 170, 80. Uh, I think the Fed would like to see it more like it is back here. You know, we have these kind of you know, double these double dips in that decade after the GFC, primarily because of uh, inflation and deflation and growth fears. But you know, I think eventually it'll settle in at about two two and a half percent. It's got a bit bit of a ways to go, um, but it's going to keep low just because the Fed is still buying a lot, buying a lot of the supply, and uh, the supply is less than it used to be. Um, by you know, by certainly by last year, the the, the Treasury is borrowing less. Uh, than it did uh, a year ago, obviously, because we're in the middle of the pandemic and we had, I don't know, two or three or four big stimulus packages back to back. A lot of that stuff is is no longer needed. So the you know, the supply from the Treasury is lower. The demand from the Fed is still high. So I think that will prevent the Treasury rates, you know, going all the way up to two, two and a half. But the, you know, the important thing here is the real borrowing rate. Now, <laughs> If you're borrowing something at negative 3.85, you can make a single percent return on it. Uh, then you're you're in. Uh, you know you're making money, and it's not often we drift down into the negative rate. We kind of got three instances of it here. That's when the, there was more of a deflation story. Rates were actually quite here, and then back here, this this kind of scares people. If you're kind of if you've got negative uh, rates, then you just don't really want to be in bonds. And that's what happened in the 1970s. I think this is. You know, going to trend up. It's not probably going to stay at negative three point five for very long. But all this is just the the ten year yield less the uh, current headline CPI. Um, and then this is another indication of the Treasury break even rate. This is nothing complicated. It's just the ten year Treasury minus the U.S. ten year Treasury 
inflation protected security. Now that hasn't been around very long. So the history on this isn't, uh, doesn't go back um, very many years. It kind of goes back to where I put started the chart actually about 03. Um, but recently the, with, the, with the tips market yields negative 1% roughly. So if you buy a tips, 10 year tips today, you're guaranteed to lose uh, 1% a year uh, when, you know, when it comes to redeeming. Uh, and so what, what this is showing is the difference between the two. So uh, th this basically says you're, you're, you're better off in nominal yields. Um, you're going to break the break-even rate. Uh, the inflation rate is 2.6 for you to be in nominal bonds rather than tips bonds. So that's definitely crept up. And it's been this high before. Some people use the five-year number instead of the 10-year number, in which case it's, uh, it's a little bit higher again. So definitely the market is you know, thinking about uh, inflation, but you know, again, I'm not too worried about this because we've been there before, and we've been there before in quite healthy economic times. This is a heat match, map, which we have kind of cheated here and used, the guy's name is John Authors, <laughs> not misspelled, uh, but it's actually pretty good um, broad measure. And it's 30, if you kind of count up this box, it's like 35 measures here. And the economic measures are things like you know, the CPI and the PPI, and I haven't filled them all in because it's a very busy chart. Um, and, the, and the PC, which is the Fed's version. The, the inflation components are things like shelter, so car rental, college, the big ones, healthcare, uh, market indicators are things like um, the break-evens I just mentioned about, consumer and business sentiment are things like the Michigan consumer, consumer confidence indicators that came out today, good numbers, by the way. Uh, the NFIB, which is the individual business, um, small businesses, raw materials, are the, you know, as you'd expect, so metals, energy, uh, and agriculture, uh, and wages are weekly, hourly, uh, low skill and high skill, and, and then, then we've got the export forecast. So, yeah, so what we're looking at here is the, the bluer it is, the more inflation, you know, is deviating from its past. Um, and you can see the economic ones are the ones which are saying this the loudest. The experts are saying, and they can always be wrong, but these aren't just the sell side guys. These are, you know, people who are not paid to be bullish all the time, um, but they can see inflation, you know, moderating or not getting particularly high over the long term. As I mentioned before, it is really not showing up in wages. The only one it's showing up in wages, I think, is the, uh, yeah, small business wages, which is this one. But I'm a bit skeptical of that measure because uh, you know, small businesses, whenever they're surveyed, they always say they're paying their they can't find enough people and they, and they um, don't like having to pay them very much. Um, so, you know, if, this, if, the, if all of this line was this color, you'd say, oh, well, then there's some real wage push inflation coming through, pull inflation coming through, but it, it's, it's pretty limited right now. Um, so, you know, we, yeah, we've got some dark blues, but we've got, you know, more in the normal phase as well. Anyway, so this is just, you can measure inflation hundreds of ways that this guy has done, I think a fairly good heat map about 35. I couldn't really argue with the components about what shouldn't be in there and what should be and isn't. Um, so it's a pretty broad indicator. And the takeaway is yeah, inflation's a little bit higher than it was, <clears throat> but it's not screaming, uh, you know, runaway inflation, <clears throat> certainly not hyperinflation. Some of these logistic problems, you know, have eased uh, again. Uh, this is just the um, uh, freight service index, which is the blue one. Uh, so that's now 1% above what it was a year ago. It obviously climbed very high. And the other one is the, uh, the revenue freight ton miles. So some of the demand is, is uh, 
easing off it. Now, whether the demand is easing off because they can't get it or because they're kind of sated and the, the demand is all met, uh, you don't know. I suspect the problem that the, you know, I, I mentioned these supply problems at the beginning with the ports aren't going to go away, go away overnight. They are real, but I think they're also eminently fixable. And we've also think of this uh, as uh, as a demand problem because you know here we've got industrial production still clicking you know nicely up from its base so it's uh, um, you know it's up about twenty percent from its low last year and here's the delivery times this is to, I mentioned this in the blog the other day this is where manufacturers say you know it's taking me uh, this isn't measured in days it's an index but it's taking me longer and longer to get the supplies that I need in order to have my finished goods so again this is this is more of a demand problem. I mean, you can't really tell from this because it could also be a supply problem. But I think that I think what's happening is suddenly a lot of these businesses were operating at one level of capacity for most of 2020 and then a different level at the end of 2020 into 21. Uh, and then um, at a different level again, and then suddenly the demand sort of, you know, came, came hard and fast at them and they weren't, they weren't ready for it. I mean, they'd furloughed workers, they'd closed plants, they'd mothballed machinery, they'd, uh, you know, they'd, taken out half the tables in a restaurant, whatever way you want to measure it, you know, the, the, the capacity, um, you know, was cut. And I think a lot of it will, you know, come back again if the, the demand holds up, I think it will. Yeah, house prices are going slightly bonkers, um, but, uh, you know, that's really low wages, uh, sorry, uh, low, low, mortgage, low mortgage rates and, uh, and demand. But as for years, there's been a problem with, and it goes on about 20 years of, uh, Housing starts um, not really keeping up with the growth of the labor force, but this is a good indicator of things which which might see some relief on that. In, that, in essence, essentially, we've had a you know a supply problem with houses. I mean, other than the GFC, you know, the big financial crisis. Uh, otherwise, since then, there's been very you know, house builders have been very cautious about about you know building to speculation or building without you know seeing the demand very clearly. But now you're seeing this is just measuring housing under construction. So, it, uh, you know, this, this is 1.4 million, which, uh, yeah, we saw briefly in 06. But, you know, this, this means that there's more supply coming. And then this is the rental units, because these are, uh, you know, um, th these are um, multifamily units, five, five or more. And I've also added in the two or more. So essentially, it's anything which is not a freestanding house, which, which people live in. And, uh, and that's, that can ramp up. It takes longer to build because it takes about eight months to build a house. It takes about eight to 16 months to build one of these things. But you can see that the supply is, uh, you know, is, is coming online. I think that's going to be a good relief to housing prices, uh, especially going into 2022. As I mentioned, we've, had, we've seen some job wages increased. Here's the leisure and hospitality. This doesn't surprise me unless, you know, the, in the Obama years, the leisure and hospitality guys just got a pretty raw deal. I mean, they just, uh, you know, didn't see any wage increases for over a decade. Um, and these are all in nominal. And, and, um, uh, and then, you know, then a lot of them disappeared. A lot of them, have, you, know, a lot of, have, you know, for, for employers to get them back, they've had to increase wages. You know, these are, these are very low paying jobs. Uh, and most of them, nearly all of them actually are not full-time, 20 hours or less. Um, and then retail trade is, it's, you know, that's popped up a little bit. And then, uh, you know, transportation and warehousing. So yeah, you've got some wage increases in, in some areas which have been uh, 
had supply problems and let a lot of people go. Remember the, the leisure and hospitality industry kind of played, employed about 18 million people in February, 2020, and it went down to nine and now it's up to 15. So it's still a lot of places that need to be filled. But I think people were looking to get out of that business if they could. It's not exactly a, you know, a great uh, long-term career to have. Um, so I think, you know, the wage growth is, is really, you know, look across the line and th this shows the wage growth, the median wage growth, people who stick around about three and a half percent, remember inflation's higher than that. Uh, and then people who move jobs, you know, are getting, are getting pay rises. Uh, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense the, you know, the quit rate is, um, is high right now, um, which I think is good. It shows confidence that people, you know, can quit their job and move and hopefully get a, you know, a better paying one. Again, these are mostly, um, mostly in, um, uh, in in lower lower paid uh, jobs, <clears throat> but the real earnings, you know, are, are pretty pretty awful. So you know, here you've got the nominal five, four, and three, but this is what it is when you adjust for inflation. It's like 0 0.4, 0 0.1, minus 0.8, minus 0.8, and these are for hourly earnings, all employees, and includes the, you know the group of people who are in more management jobs as well. So this isn't. Uh, this is not inflationary. I'm just sorry, I have a hard time getting my head around the fact that you're going to get a lot of inflation when you've got being paid people being paid, you know, almost zero wage increases. Uh, I mean, they're going to have a tough time going out and spend beyond their normal means if they're not getting uh, real wage increases. And the rise in the gasoline is like a negative consumption tax because I think what happens is that people they go out and suddenly they you know they, instead of costing fifty dollars to fill up the car, it suddenly costs sixty five or seventy. And they begin to then stop buying other things in their in their in their world. So they might say, "Well, let's turn the heat down. We can't afford it." Or, uh, you know, maybe we can't go out to eat, you know, two times a week. So they kind of it's kind of deflationary over the long term, but it shows up as inflation. So I think you know, with the, the low the low um, low wage increases in real terms, and the fact that you know energy is going to take some of the uh, purchasing power out of these, even these you know pretty mediocre increases, means that we just probably won't get in you know big continuing inflation surge. Uh, job market is healing. Gosh, this has been a long time. Uh, we got down below three hundred thousand. So really, that's what we're looking for. Before the before this, it was about two hundred twenty thousand. But that uh, weekly claims, in other words, people who left their jobs involuntarily. Uh, and then it got to stratospheric levels and it's been sort of, you know, coming down ever since. But if you kind of look over here, uh, what happened this year is the, the, the decrease got, got, got halted dead in its tracks, you know, with the, with the Delta variant. And then we've had, you know, about a month's worth of every week was a little bit worse than the prior week. And now we've seen the reverse. So eventually we're kind of, you know, a number, 290,000. I mean, there's some, I've written about the seasonal variations. This is very volatile. Um, and, the, and the seasonal adjustments are very difficult to make. I mean, I think the I think the BLS who puts these numbers out do a do a really good job. It's very difficult to figure out, you know, how many people leave a job are genuinely leaving a job, um, as opposed to just getting rehired again. And things like education and uh, is a big one because there's so many you know part time people in the system. But anyway, I think that this is going to drift lower. We might get a three hundred thousand print tomorrow. Thursday, sorry. Uh, but otherwise, I don't think it's going to be terrible. Uh, it's it's going to increase gradually, as will this, which is the new jobs number. This last number was nothing to write home about 194,000. What we really need is 
you know, three, four hundred thousand steadily for a few months. When we've still got six million people, six million people, fewer people working than we did um, in February 2020. So, you know, the 22 million jobs lost and there's only about 15 that have been regained. So there's still you know, labor participation is low. Uh, so we really need to start seeing these job numbers increase. And I think they will begin to in the back part of, back, back part of the year. Um, this has also got a lot of attention. This is the, the quits number. Now I am absolutely in the camp that the quits number is, a, is, a, is an indicator of confidence. You don't quit your job unless you're very confident that you have A, won the lottery or B, uh, can move to a job which is uh, higher paying. Because if you quit, you're not, uh, you know, you're not eligible for unemployment benefits. So this is the uh, total farm quit levels, and it's 4.2 million on a workforce of you know 150 million. And it's very high in places like um, uh, leisure and hospitality. It's almost all driven by that actually. So, but I think generally this is this is a good thing. Um, you know, it means that people can get better paying jobs, especially the lower paid. It's really where you know, where we want to see have people have more purchasing power. Um, and if people then, you know, move to higher paying jobs, then it behooves the company that lost them to either seek increased uh, pay and wage, either get, um, think about higher increases pay and wages, or, you know, seek improvements in their productivity. And I think they're going to do both, particularly the latter. Um, this has been a year for stocks. This is basically, if you see the line goes down, it means that treasuries are outperforming equities. And if the line goes up, it's the other way around. So, so 2009, we obviously since had generally equities have outperformed bonds with some big times where for a year, in this case, in 2011, sideways for two years. But obviously last year, when we saw the treasury rate go to 50 basis points, there was a massive increase uh, outperformance of bonds. And since then, it's been the reverse. And really, uh, you know, that kind of makes sense given the amount of stimulus and recovery we've seen in the equity market and the low rates of the bond market. So uh, the, you can see that, you know, for ever since middle of last year, you know, equities have you know, outperformed. Uh, you know, this is just treasuries, but um, certainly you know, treasury, long treasury securities by quite a bit. Um, but yeah, sorry about the change in color here, but you know, but the market, you know, has delivered. Um, this is today's number. So we're knocking on the door of 4,600. Uh, today it's, it's closed at 4,574. Um, uh, but look at the earnings. I mean, uh, you know, we, we went into this recession with earnings at about, earnings per share, about um, 170. Obviously they got, they got clobbered last year, uh, but then that increase has been spectacular. And uh, if you took this number pre-2019 and kind of just, just drew a line up at that angle, you'd, you'd arrive, arrive probably below what we are today. So, um, so the, you know, it's definitely been the case that the S&P 500 has delivered on earnings growth and they continue to do so in today's, uh, um, this season's um, results season. Yeah, I've talked about this, uh, you know, the, 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 there was a big rotation to small and mid cap earlier in the year. It's squeezed up right now. Um, it's got small caps up 24% and the top five up 21%. So it's all kind of bunched in here right now. It's been, it's been uh, you know, much broader, uh, broader market. All, in other words, all the kind of different market caps have, have moved in roughly the same direction. I'm going to spend just a minute quickly on Bitcoin uh, because it's just on everyone's mind. Uh, 
I'm not going to go into a long discussion about Bitcoin. We are putting a Q&A together on Bitcoin, which we'll hopefully have post up on the web within a week. Uh, it's, it's, it's been 99% done by a very, very good um, intern we have for the, for the summer. So we now just need to uh, you know, finish it up and get it up there. But you know, it kind of gives our thoughts on Bitcoin. But the bottom line is we don't think this is the way to buy it. This is the, this is the futures curve. So the CME is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So there was a, an ETF... Um, launched last week, which tracks the Bitcoin future. It doesn't buy Bitcoin because that's all secret and difficult, uh, but it buys the futures on it. But look at the curve on this. It basically you know, it's what happens if you get a lot of bullishness in, a, in an asset class. The, you can buy it at the spot level about 65,000, but you can have to buy, buy another, you have to pay a $3,000 premium to get a, to be able to buy it in January. Um, and more like a $10,000 premium to have it delivered next year. So this is what, you know, futures curves normally look like. There's times when they don't, but this is kind of what a normal curve looks like. And an ETF which does this is, um, there are plenty of them actually, but, but this is probably the most famous example. They buy, this is uh, an ETF called USO. You can look it up. Um, and, it's, and it basically buys the one month future of, of the crude oil. And you can see that it was always lagging the oil price. Uh, so they started off at the same level here, but here the lag is considerable. Why? Because futures are more expensive than spot. So what happens with this with this fund is it you know it 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 gets money in and it buys a thirty day future at a premium to the spot, and then that one, and then the next day they do the same again. The next day they do the same again, and then the thirty day rolls off and they keep on doing it again. So you're always always going to underperform. Um, because you know, if, if the curve looks like it does, you're always buying it at a premium. And this one totally collapsed last year. So the oil price, well, you know, came off quite a bit, uh, but uh, the, the 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 futures price actually went negative for a couple of uh, couple of days. And this fund got absolutely clobbered. So you know, if you bought this, if you bought a barrel of oil back in uh, 2017, it'd be worth you know, for 100 bucks, it'd be worth 167. But if you bought the the uh, the ETF which attracted, you'd be, you'd have lost thirty five percent. It's a big difference, uh, and it's not just with oil. It's happened in this to copper as well. If you bought if you bought copper, uh, you know as a metal, you're up thirty one percent since uh, twenty twelve. If you bought the ETF, you're only up thirteen percent. In other words, the basic rule of hand rule of thumb is if an ETF buys Futures, it's going to lose money relative to the underlying all the time. And it's already happening in the Bitcoin one. So this is just only three days worth of trading. So Bitcoin was down, this is the top line, I don't know, 4%, whatever, 3.5% you know, and, the, and the ETF's down 5%. So they've started off exactly as you'd think they would. This is just not a, just not a good way to play Bitcoin. Um, and again, if you ever see an ETF with futures in its perspective, you know, just uh, run the other way. Uh, emerging markets, we're still, we haven't seen much clarity. This is almost the same chart as I posted last month. There's been a little bit of, um, you know, W-shaped recovery here. But right now, you know, the, 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 out, the outlook in, uh, in China and emerging markets is distinctly chilly. Okay, so let me uh, just um, uh, summarize here. You know, Delta seems to have peaked, uh, which is good. Consumer activity is more coming online that the supply problems are real. I'm not sort of downplaying the port and all the you know, subsidiary and related issues around supply, but I do think they are solvable and fixable. Uh, and eventually, you know, if there's 
more demand, supply has a way of finding its way into the market, unless it's a government controlled or a for, totally false market. But that's not what we're talking about here. Um, inflation, expect more spikes. Uh, you know, you might even see things like the Jack Dorsey quote. Again, I keep that in, you know, very much in check. Um, I, th I think, you know, what we're seeing is a period of inflation, which was running at one and a half percent. We might see a period of inflation where it's running at two and a half percent. But if you're in stocks, you're well hedged against that. And I don't think, uh, you know, it requires a massive um, rotation out of one asset class to another. Um, the employment side is certainly getting better. The fiscal bills, you know, I'm at the point where it's like, I'm not sure they're going to make much of a difference. Um, we've got the real infrastructure bill. Sounds like a big number, you know, trillion dollars. But it's over 10 years, so it's $100 billion. $100 billion on $23 trillion economy is not a lot. And then the uh, soft infrastructure one, which is more government spending, which is kind of being whittled away as we look at it. Um, I, there's a lot of talk about tax increases, uh, income tax for people above 400,000. That seems to have gone nowhere. Corporation tax moving from 21 to 25. That seems to be dying, or that might end up being 23 or something. Um, changes in the step up basis, that's kind of gone away. This la latest one, just this last week or so, is if you have a, if you're a, a billion worth a billion dollars in assets, about 700 people in the United States who are, um, or you weren't more than $100 million a year for three years, there's essentially kind of a, well, it's not really a wealth tax, but it's a, it's a tax on unrealized uh, gains. Um, I don't know. It'd be, I don't think they'll be able to get that through, but we'll see. Um, but it doesn't raise a lot of money. So I think um, I think the the market is just pretty chill about all this. <laughs> um, I think I think the the bills are important from a societal point of view, but from a financial point of view, then the markets have, have discounted it. I'm not too worried about uh, you know a, a stock market sell off coming as a result of big changes in the tax treatment of stocks, or indeed the companies that operate in the in the stock market. And then the Fed will taper. So next week, you know, I'll probably send a note around uh, that they'll have announced it. I'd be shocked if they didn't say something. Um, and then the only question is, you know, how much $15 billion a month we think and when they start, we think it'll be around about December. Um, but that's sort of, you know, a gradual tightening of the monetary conditions and uh, but, but something that the market I think is comfortable with. And that's why I think we're, we're obviously riding right now very high based on some and another very strong uh, earnings quarter. Good. Uh, well, thank you very much. Um, let me just see if I've, I've got any questions. Um, if not, I'll be uh, happy to take questions that come in afterwards, uh, either by you know, text or email. Let's see if we have a couple of questions. Um, you've talked about how inflation and supply chain concerns may be exaggerated, but when you look at what might impact our portfolios in the next 12 months, what does worry you? Uh, thanks. Um, I, I I think it, it, most mostly what's going to worry me is the uh, disappointment and the lack of uh, labor growth. Labor participation has gone down, um, and we're still, as I mentioned, six or seven million, depending on which survey you use, fewer people working than they were last uh, January or February. We need to get those people back in the workforce for, you know, for a lot of reasons. They need to be earning, uh, probably could earn more than not earning. Um, the, uh, you know, it's, 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 we're kind of not using our full capacity. So I think if there's a, 
if there's a, a blip on the job side, you know, we see you know, a run of 100,000 new jobs a month or something like that, um, then that would be worrying because I think it, it would show that there's, that, you know, the demand has really been clipped badly and, and uh, you know, there's something more permanent about the shifting in the labor force. Um, so that, that's my biggest concern. I mean, I mean, I worry in the sense that how other people will worry, so second derivative about, we get a few runs of inflation, but I think, uh, you know, that people might sell that off if they're, if they're really, if they are worried about it. But I would see that as a, somewhat as a buying opportunity. I mean, I think that companies can manage a two and a half percent inflation run easily. I mean, they did that in the nineties, you know, for a decade and a half. So, um, and that's, and they even did it at a higher rate. So I'm not particularly worried about that other than, you know, people, you know, making a bigger deal about of it, out of it. But um, I think my biggest one is the, is the labor side. Uh, ah, this is um, one of my favorite clients. I spent much of September in Europe on vacation, blissfully unconnected, <laughs> uh, but noticed by my latest statement, that looks a pretty good haircut in September. Presume others might have too. Underlying causes for this or usual September, October volatility. I mean, I think some of that is, uh, you know, you, you get rebalancing. So as I mentioned, showed that, you know, chart which showed how much equities had outperformed bonds. So there's a lot of portfolios which balance rigorously. You think of the entire target date maturity fund industry, you know, where Vanguard and State Street and everybody under the sun, you know, has these target date funds. And if domestic equities, you know, went up, it meant that the bond component uh, was low and, and emerging markets went low. So they literally sold, at, you know, uh, the, the top performing asset US and bought what they thought was cheaper fixed income and emerging markets. So I think some of that, some of that's been happening and that might happen again in December. It tends to happen at quarter end uh, or, or ahead of quarter end, I should say. So I think that there was some of that. Um, but I, you know, the market has sort of bounced back. And I think that, I think what was happening was the jobs numbers weren't particularly good. The 190,000 when we'd had 500,000 um the claims numbers weren't shifting um and we was you know the inflation was out there and then the fed was um you know really didn't seem to be reacting and i think people thought well are they are they reacting because they don't see a problem or are they just reacting not reacting because they're asleep at the switch and i think the the talk in august and more recently is that they're not asleep at the switch they you know they they do recognize that some inflation is out there but they're putting it very much in the camp of camp transitory and I think that um, you know recently the, the market has got more comfortable uh, with inflation. So hopefully the haircut uh, has reversed itself a little bit and uh, hopefully your, uh, your, your statements, um, if you look at them today, should, should see some of that um, reversed. Uh, what portfolio changes would you expect for bonds if rates keep rising? Um, we probably, uh, probably bring in the uh, duration a little bit. I mean, our duration is pretty low. I mean, it's a five or six, um, the 10 year treasury duration is nine, for example. So we try and uh, bring in the duration uh, a little bit. We, in the past where we've seen rates sort of increase quite rapidly, which they did in 2018, we've used floating rate notes um, and we might use those again, but, uh, but for the moment you're starting off with such a low yield because the the treasury floating rate notes have pegged off the one month T-bill, which is, oh, I don't know, three basis points or something, not even. But uh, so floating rate notes might be something. Um, 
we uh, yeah otherwise and mortgage-backed securities t tend to tend to be okay um, and uh, but I think in all of this we'd we'd stay continue to stay high high credit because if you did get a big increase uh, you know if rates rose rapidly then the guys who are most indebted the high yield guys are going to be in more trouble um, and then uh, for some people we've done this kind of one of a better word ladder approach where we've sort of bought you know, one bond at one year and one bond at 10 and something in between. So as they roll over, they, they reinvest at the higher coupon rates uh, if, if rates are increasing. So we'd, we'd certainly be doing that as well. Good, thanks very much. I think, I think I've covered them all. Um, yeah. Okay, well, uh, thanks very much for everybody. This will be posted uh, up on our website and I think it's a podcast too. Uh, so please feel free to jump into that or tell your friends they should jump into that then you see it again and uh, i will see you uh, next month and some of you i hope i get the pleasure of talking with over the next uh, few weeks i'm now going to read the disclosure so for those of you who love disclosures this is this is the high point of the presentation for those of you that don't like disclosures um feel free to do what you need to do okay uh Discussions of the investment, investment strategy, research, investment process of Brian Janikowski, as of the date indicated, as of the date of this presentation, are subject to change without notice. Charts illustrated throughout this presentation may be updated periodically. We have no obligation to provide revised assessments in the event of change circumstances. We cannot assure that the types of investments mentioned in this presentation will produce the intended results or outperform any other investments in the future. We reserve the right to change our investment perspectives and outlook without. Uh, without notice as market conditions dictate and additional information becomes available. Diversification does not protect the investor from market risk and does not ensure profit. The information is subject to unintentional errors and changes without notice. All sources are from facts unless otherwise no, no, no other, unless noted otherwise. While we gather this information from sources we believe to be reliable, we cannot guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any statements on numerical data in this presentation. References to an individual security should not be construed as recommendation to buy sell that security. Securities noted this presentation are only several securities successful as well as unsuccessful investments by Brian Janikowski and do not represent all the securities we have purchased, sold, or recommended. Index returns, reinvested, dividends, and interest, uh, but do not reflect commissions or transaction costs. Mutual fund returns reinvest include mutual fund returns include reinvested dividends and capital gains distributions. Mutual fund returns are net with the fund expenses. They do not reflect Brian Janikowski's fees. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. We may reference various hypothetical investment illustrations. These are for illustration purposes only and not investment recommendations. Do not guarantee any indication of future results. 